I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, we are talking with my friend, Karen Fleshman, who is the founder and CEO of Racy Conversations. Karen and I have known each other for over a decade with her social justice work. She started off in, she started off with the New York DYCDA and then went on to Europe, did various stints as a development director and program work, and now runs this company, Racy Conversations. So welcome, Karen. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here with you, Rhea. And I, I, um, we met each other uh, at 55 Exchange Place. Shout out to 55. (laughs) Yes. And that 55 Exchange Place uh, working at Europe was a transformational period in my life. And there were so many incredible women of color in that working in that building who I'm, I'm still lifelong friends with. And, and um, it was such a great experience. Karen, I'm just going to jump right into this. So you founded Racy Conversations about five years ago. What is Racy Conversations and why did you start it? Our mission is to inspire the anti-racist generation. And we are a workplace workshop facilitation company. And we, we facilitate workshops all across the country on uh, moving your organization to racial equity, unconscious bias, microaggressions, allyship, and sexual harassment. And the reason why I started it, uh, so prior to working for DYCD, my career was in the immigrants' rights movement. When I was, I moved, I started working at DYCD on an initiative to help immigrants become citizens. Uh, we were defunded in the post 9-11 economic downturn. And that was right around when Community Service Society put out reports that said 50% of black men in New York City don't have a job. And we have almost 200,000 young adult New Yorkers, almost entirely black and Latinx who are not in school, not working. And coming from the immigrants rights movement, it was like, what? Like, how is that even possible? And then no one even cared. Like this was not front page of the New York Times. This was not a big deal, but I really cared. And uh, I was fortunate to be able to co-found a summer internship program for young people in New York City, Ladders for Leaders, so that instead of doing summer youth employment program in a park or a daycare center, they were going off to JP Morgan, and and Bloomberg and all these glassy high-rise offices. Um, And it was transformative for them, transformative for their supervisors. But the folks I was really concerned about were the ones who were not in school, not working. So when I heard about Year Up and Year Up was serving those young adults, that was very exciting. And one day Gerald Shertavian and Lizette Nieves called me up out of the blue and said, we want you to come work here. These are the terms and you have 24 hours to make up your mind. So I left DYCD, went to Europe, and it was in my conversations with the young adults that I realized everything I learned about race and racism growing up was harmful and inaccurate and I am part of the problem and that I needed to change. And then in 2014, by then I'd moved to the Bay Area. I was continuing to work for Europe doing student outreach and recruitment. And I was glued to what happened in Ferguson. 
Jackson. And it's particularly when Darren Wilson was not indicted for killing Mike Brown, something in me really shifted. And a conversation a couple weeks after that with two young black women who graduated from Europe and were now working in tech companies for a couple of years, we were out to brunch and they're telling me how grateful they are for their incomes and their lifestyles and the fact that they're able to stay in the Bay Area while many of their friends and family are being pushed out. But nevertheless, being the only black woman, as far as the eye can see every time they come into work, they are bombarded with nonstop toxicity and harm, a lot of it coming from women who look like me. And it was that moment where I was just like, damn, I have basically spent my whole career working in communities of color. And from now on, I wanna work on white people. And instead of preparing young adults of color for professional workplaces, I wanna prepare professional workplaces for young adults of color. Because I want all of us to thrive, right? I want young people to be able to have awesome careers and good incomes. And I want companies to benefit from all this amazing talent and genius that goes so untapped. But I'm not gonna do it at the expense of the young people. We have to, we have to change. And that was the genesis of Racy Conversation. I'm just gonna be real with you because we've known each other for far too long. But I gotta be honest with you, over the last four years, I've been disappointed and angry at white women. 53% mm -hmm. of white women voted for Trump. You have folks like Permit Patty in the Bay Area, Barbecue Becky, uh, most recently here in New York, Central Park, Karen calling the cops. And I'm just wondering, like, what's up with white women? Well, that's that's exactly what I'm writing a book about. So um, I'm writing a book, White Women, We Need to Talk, Doing Our Part to End Racism. Because I've been trying to figure this out too. Like, how did we get so messed up? And white women, literally, we were imported to this country to enforce the racial hierarchy. That has been our role since 1619. So, you know, last year we commemorated 400 years since British slave traders kidnapped the first Africans and brought them in chains to be sold into bondage in Jamestown. One thing that kind of slipped through the cracks in that commemoration was the boat that came a few months afterward, which was a boatload of white women. They were called the Tobacco Brides because the settler colonialists had paid for their passage in tobacco. And so when they got to Jamestown, they did this kind of round of speed dating and the women could decide which of these colonizers they wanted to marry. And then that was really our role. So the settler colonialists knew that they had to maintain kind of racial purity in order to keep the racial hierarchy, to make it really obvious who was in positions of power and that they had to make this an intergenerational enterprise. And that was the role that white women have played. Now, back then when white women got married, we literally became our husband. We ceased to be a legal person. We had no rights, we, we couldn't own property, all of this stuff. And yeah, it, it sort of started from there. And then white men were very strategic about who they doled power out to, to include in the system. So, so for the longest time, only landowning white men could vote. 
Then in the 1850s, they, they gave the right to vote to non-landowning white men. Then in 1920, they gave the right to vote to white women who said, give us the right to vote and you'll be able to double the white vote. They given the right to vote to black men after the Civil War, but they instituted Jim Crow and all that, the terrorism so that people couldn't vote. And so everybody else gets the right to vote in 1965. And you look at, it wasn't only 53% of white women voted for Trump in 2016. If you look in the history of white women voting, there's only been two presidential elections where the majority of white women did not vote for the Republican candidate. And that was for, for Johnson and for Bill Clinton. So white women's voting is very conservative, very much rooted in upholding the patriarchy, and it just goes on and on. When I see the permit patties, you know, I really wanted to understand what is at the root of that. And I'm interviewing all these incredible um, women of color activists for my book, and one of them is a trans woman, Lily Zhang, who I encourage everybody to follow. So Lily has done a lot of research about the experience of trans women in the workplace. And she said to me that white women in the workplace will what's called gender apprentice trans women. And they'll only do it to trans white women because they're terrified of trans women of color. But they'll see a trans woman in their workplace and they'll tell her, you know, that, that outfit is kind of passe, you shouldn't wear that anymore, or your makeup, it could be done better. Like they're literally trying to get these trans women to conform to the white male gaze of patriarchy. And she, and she believes it's because the patriarchy has granted white women tiny amounts of power when we police other women, when we police uh, people of color. And that is what that behavior is rooted in. And I think it's true when you see these, these videos, the expressions on their faces. And these are not um, uneducated women. These are highly educated women, multiple master's degrees. Like they should know better, but there's something about the way they were raised to get this tiny amount of power for policing others' behavior that I think is very much rooted in slavery, very much rooted in the fact that we have never, as a society, reconciled with our history. And that's part of the reason why I'm so inspired and grateful to be alive right now and to witness this reckoning that's long overdue. Look, I'm going to take it to the personal point right now. So over the last two weeks, I have had more conversations about race with white people than I have in like the previous 40 years. So in that way, I think that's progress, right? Like we can actually start to talk about race. On the other hand, I have been exposed to a lot of white guilt and white fragility and white tears. And I'm conscious of being a person of color and wanting to be an ally to the, you know, my black friends and colleagues by not exposing them to like all of this sort of white guilt. But tell me a little bit about how you are helping white people to process this moment that we are in right now. First of all, white people, now is not the time to call black 
people and try to ask them for absolution, okay? I, I was on the phone with a friend of mine whose four-year-old daughter had dreamt that the police killed her and she's, she's consoling her daughter and her phone keeps ringing of white people wanting to absolve, wanting her to absolve them of their guilt. Please do not do this. I talk about it in my book that when you, when I first became aware of the magnitude of harm caused by racism and my own participation in it and how I had benefited from it, it was overwhelming. It was, it was uh, intensely shameful, very guilty uh, tears of, of just how could this have happened and I didn't even realize it. And why, why, did, why didn't I take action on this earlier? And I, I compare it to what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross describes as the, as the seven stages of grief. And you do have to go through these grieving stages um, because you can't show up as an ally. You can't, you can't be effective at unlearning racism until you have metabolized some of this. I feel that we are all carrying intergenerational trauma. Black people, indigenous people are carrying intergenerational trauma from what white people did to them. And white people are carrying secondary vicarious intergenerational trauma from what we did to black people and indigenous people. I really recommend Resma Menachem his book, My Grandmother's Hands, because this is not, metabolizing this grief isn't an intellectual exercise. You're not going to get through it by reading Stamped from the Beginning or How to Be an Anti-Racist, although I love those books. I think they're fantastic. But first, we literally have to heal from the trauma that is embedded in our bodies. And Resma on his website has a free online course that helps white people to do this. And so what I'm, what I'm recommending to white people is pull together a circle of your peers who are feeling the same way and go through Resma's course together. And as far as if you want to read a book that will help you kind of understand what is going on right now, the book that I, two books that I highly recommend are um, White Rage by Carol Anderson who talks about the 400 years, every time black people have made significant progress, there has been an intense backlash by white people to push them back. And that is what the election of Trump was. It was a response to eight years under a black president that drove white people crazy, that they had to report to a black man since he is an inferior, he's, he's not, a fully human being. Um, so that's a great book for context. As far as like understanding why, you know, the leaders of this movement, as far as understanding why so many millennials and Gen Z are stepping up, I highly recommend the book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir by Patrice Coulor. That's a good book book to, to help you understand this time. But yes, I, I you know, it, when I'm in these um, listening sessions, a lot of companies are hiring me to, to kind of process their employees, what's going on. And like the black employees are sitting there very stoic and, and explaining, you know, how they're experiencing this trauma. And the white employees are literally crying. And then they feel guilty 
about feeling guilty when they know they should be centering the feelings of the people who are actually directly harmed, but nevertheless, they still feel guilty. And I, I can't tell them, oh, it's illegitimate for you to feel guilty. I mean, feelings are feelings, they are emotions. But I do think it is harmful for, that, for them to be processing those feelings in the, in the face of the people who are directly harmed and traumatized. It's not appropriate. We need to pull into our own space and process those feelings. That said, we can't languish in that space forever because that can turn into a comfortable space that can turn into a toxic place where we are replicating white supremacy. So we, we go into that space to grieve, to process, to heal from our intergenerational trauma. And then we pop out and we learn from black and indigenous women of color how to really unlearn our racism, how to really unlearn our deep-seated internalized sexism uh, um, and, and all of our isms because they're all interrelated. Um, but racism is the most fundamental of them all and it's the one we must focus on in this time. So Karen, you've talked a little bit about you know, various resources, which we'll make sure to post uh, after this conversation to everyone who's, who's registered. What else might folks do to become white allies? And I'm wondering if you could also speak a little bit to the concept of white-splaining for those of us who don't know what that means. So white-splaining, are folks familiar with the term mansplaining? Uh, so, you All know- All the women are. <laughs> it's when like, uh, how can I put it? You 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 point out something as a woman, and then a man explains why it's justified to you, or a man explain like you are a recognized authority on some subject, and then a man tries to explain that same subject to you, or tries to explain your lived experience to you. It's the same thing with white explaining. So. If a, if a black person points out what they are going through and then a white person, you know, compares what they have been through to what the black person has been through or minimizes or says something like, you're so strong, all of those types of things. Do not do this. Do not, folks, do not. Do you, do you understand how harmful and horrific that is? Black people have never been heard in our society, okay? We don't listen to them. It has taken how many years of police brutality videos, okay? Rodney King, I was in New York for Abner Lima back in 97, Amadou Diallo. I mean, we can go on and on and on. There, there's over a, a thousand people who are killed by the police every year in our country, most of them far away from the cameras, most of them in rural areas, in on Native American reservations. And you know what's really sick? We don't even know for sure how many, how many people are killed by the police every year because the government does not keep track of it. Activists have to keep track of it because the government won't even track it. This is how politically powerful police are in our society. And the idea that we are just now coming to this point where we're, where we're listening to Black people, and I, and I am happy. I mean, like, if you see the New York Times bestseller list right now, all top 10 books, all of them are about racism. And I'm so happy 
to finally see people listening and learning and striving to get better. Please do it. But but please give Black people their space, listen to them, do what they say, pay them some reparations, stand up for them in the workplace. I saw some, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my whole article on, on how to be a good white ally right now. But if you want to show up to protest, that's awesome. Definitely do it. But make sure you're not replicating white supremacy when you show up. That means you follow the tactics are set by the Black people leading the movement. You listen to them. You do what they say. You protect them and shield them and prevent them from being harmed by the police. Bring water. Bring bring resources, give them money so they can pay their babysitter so that they can be there. You know what I'm saying? Like active, no one pays activists. Okay. It's very costly. It's extremely time consuming. It takes a tremendous toll on the activists. I'm, I'm helping. Um, I link to it in my post, uh, a woman who I just love, who's just such a fierce warrior. I mean, she, she has autoimmune disease, She's involved in a, a custody battle for her child. She's up against a really racist court system, family court system. Like we need to help the activists directly. Um, and I, I offer several other tips in, in, the, in the post about how to show up as a good white ally right now. You use the term white supremacist. And I think for a lot of us, we, we think about white supremacists like you're running around in a hood and like you're like a neo-Nazi. But I just wonder if you could speak a little bit about what you mean when you say white supremacy and, I, and in particular in professional spaces. Because I think we have this idea of like, I'm a professional, I'm not a white supremacist, but we, we don't often sort of see what we can't see. Like we don't, it's like a fish in water, like you don't know you're wet. And so you talk to me about what you mean when you say white supremacy, particularly in like a professional setting. So Tema Okun has a great article about white supremacy culture and how it is basically the equivalent of professional culture. Like the things that we consider proper behavior, etiquette, the way to dress, being punctual, this strive toward perfection, the, the importance of the written word, the importance of maintaining peace, the avoidance of any form of conflict. All of these kind of cultural norms are white supremacists because they are upholding white power and positions of power. So you take that from the work setting and to, into every single aspect of our society. I mean, look at who serves in the U.S. Senate. Look at who serves as president. Look at who controls all the big corporations, who runs the media, who controls publishing, who controls you know, the financial system, the health system, everything is controlled by white people and we dominate all those spaces and make it extremely difficult for people of color, particularly black people, to be able to, to function and thrive within those systems. And we don't serve, like if I were a black parent, I don't know where I'd send my kids to school. Honestly, I don't know where I would send them to school because I would I would think I would have to homeschool them because there's no institution that is serving black children well that I can point to. So it, it is pervasive and ongoing and upheld 
through all white social circles where we exchange our social capital with each other. But it just seems normal that everybody we associate with is white, but it's not normal. I mean, most of you live in New York City, right? White people make up a third of the population of New York City. But how many of your friends are white? When you go to a social event, how many, how diverse is it? Is it representative of New York? And why is that so? Why is that not so? I know when I lived in New York, my social circle before I started becoming a mentor to all these young adults was very much composed of people who looked like me, thought like me, had similar lived experiences as me. And we're never going to be right in this society until we change that. Um, I know a lot of the folks on the call do work with young people and do work with um, young people from diverse backgrounds. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about from the perspective of you know, being a white ally to your peers, but what does it mean to be a white ally to younger people who are, you know, who are under our care? My mentees became my greatest mentors. And I learned so much from listening to them. So I think it starts by humbling yourself that you are not the driver. They are the driver, okay? And your role as a caring adult in their life is to listen to them, to support them, and to connect them to resources and opportunities and and everything you can that is going to be of benefit to them, but don't try to make them conform to white culture. Don't, don't tell them that they're wrong for wearing their hair naturally or for not code switching or all these different things. Don't try to get them to become, allow them to be who they truly are and don't, don't interfere with their identity. That's what I'm trying to say. And don't try to make them conform to white standards of professionalism and all this stuff. And I know I did that work for many years and I thought that I was helping them. And in a way I was uh, because, you know, they, they did get great jobs and stuff like that. But I think our responsibility as white people is, is to transform the systems so that they serve young people well not to transform the young people so that they can somehow somehow access these systems and but meanwhile experience tremendous harm in them. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's something I really struggle with because of my time at Breakthrough. I mean, so much of how we defined success was being successful within predominantly white institutions whether it was elite schools or elite jobs. And so I guess I'm just I'm really struggling with the extent to which I may have caused harm in the name of wanting to position them for success, right? Because like the economic structure is such that like, you know, you're, you are going to make a lot more money working for Goldman Sachs. Right. And right. that does mean breaking generational poverty in their families. So I'm just wondering if you swear that. I just remember Ria sitting at the Robin Hood benefit, you know, in, I don't know when this was like the early, the early, like 2010 or something. And to be surrounded by the hedge fund guys who had, you know, the, the banks that had sold the subprime mortgage loans to our students' families, they had lost all the money they had saved up for those down payments 
lost the home in foreclosure. Then the banks had bundled those mortgages. The hedge funders had traded them. They all made a lot of money off of it. Then they lost their home in foreclosure. Then the private equity swooped in and bought up all their homes. And then I'm sitting there surrounded by all these folks who profited from that, none of whom went to jail. And you and me and everybody on this call, we bailed them out. And they're like giving money through this auction or whatnot, you know, and it's just, it is so toxic. And I think there has to be a major reckoning within nonprofit culture and within every institution of our society. Like yesterday, um, I was doing a call with corporate women and I was like, these corporations are coming out with Black Lives Matter statements. I want to see you open up about all of the practices you do that, that before the pandemic, median Black net wealth was projected to be zero by 2033, median Latinx net wealth projected to be zero by 2053. What are you doing, corporations, that is causing the draining of wealth from these communities? And also what, I wanna see your FEC results because who are you donating money to in Congress? Okay, you wanna say Black Lives Matter and donate to these politicians who don't care at all about black life? No, you get, there, there has to be a reckoning across the board, including within the nonprofit sector and including with individual white people and our role in upholding all of this through the way we live. As I like to say, I'm not responsible for all of the racist policies, practices, uh, and, and things that happened before my time, right? And I am responsible for my life, understanding my role in this, changing who I am, and not reinforcing it. And how am I gonna use my wealth, my privilege, my power, to change everything? And that is the question we need to be asking ourselves. Uh, I'm going to open it up to the floor. Annie Cahoon has a question. Hi, sure. Thank you. I am very curious about how we can do this reckoning in, in public schools. I live in the Bay Area. I work um, in a public school and have been in educational leadership for about 15 years now. And everywhere I have worked, I've seen these little seemingly small actions and that the people take to control to under the guise of providing advice to folks um, trying to control or have people conform to a set of expectations that they're somehow holding up so the story that you told about cis white women in the workplace approaching trans white women in the workplace being like oh you could like straighten your hair or like oh you could change your outfit that like sisterhood through conforming to the male gaze I feel like there's a very strong parallel between that kind of, I don't know, it just, I find it disgusting. So I'm sorry, I'm like, I, can't, I don't want to say it in a more objective way, but it just, it bothers me. And I think that I see a parallel and I'm just thinking out loud on this call between how then, you know, white women who have, you know, I'd say like your average public school teacher who's a white female doesn't have a ton of power but the power that she has been allotted, the power that she has been given is going to start to meet out is often through small acts of 
either aggression or forced conformity on our students. I, I just see a parallel there, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that, how organizationally folks in schools can break that pattern of how, you know, how, do, we, how do we as educators support our young kids and not continue to um, enforce white supremacy on them and heteronormative like expression, all that stuff. How do we, how do we break that pattern? Because it's so, um, as you said, 400 years old. Yeah, I thank you so much for that question. And I'm a public school parent in the Bay Area who is deeply invested in this in, in my kids' schools. And, um, you know, it takes a small group, like, like what is that thing? Never a small group of committed people can't change the world. In fact, it's the only, one, it's the only thing that ever has. I think in, in my kids' school, so parents have come together with teachers, with the principal, you know, we've, we've had racial equity conversations because it's not only the teachers, it's the way the parents behave in the school. It's the way the PTA behaves in the school and who feels like they belong and who feels, and even within our school, you know, there's such a huge class differential. It's, it's, it's a very diverse public elementary school that you have, you know, some kids who are walking there from the nearby public housing and other kids who are being dropped off in Priuses and stuff like that all at the same schools. And the kids can perceive all of that. So I think it takes a small group of very committed people with different stakeholder roles within the organization to push for change, beginning with sitting and listening to each other's stories to really start to understand what needs to change and to develop a shared vision. Okay, what would an anti-racist version of our school look like? Okay, come up with a shared vision together. And then how, you know, uh, what is that thing? When you plan, okay, what are the steps we're gonna need to take to get there? And who's gonna be involved in that? And how can we, how can we go one by one with all the different stakeholders and win them over to this vision? And I think right now, people's hearts are softened, people's eyes are open. And my biggest thing is everybody pick something. Everybody pick one thing in your sphere of influence, one thing under your capacity in your regular everyday life that you are gonna dedicate yourself to transforming. If we each transform one thing, the societal change we'll need, we need will bubble up from there. Got a question coming in from Max. Hi, Karen. Thanks for running this uh, this whole conversation. Um, and Maria, thank you for including me, inviting me. Um, so, you know, one of the things I'm encountering a lot with family members, less so with friends, I think less so with friends because I'm sort of in the bubble that is young people in New York. In so many ways, my family is, I guess you would say with it, you know, they're, they're not racist, right? But they're not quite anti-racist. And I think quite my question is, how do you engage with people who are kind of in denial about biases or, um, or evasive? You know, when, when you're talking to people who their blind spots are often coming out of like uh, subscribing to res uh, respectability politics, 
I think of like a conversation I had with, you know, my aunt last week when we were talking about what's going on for the longest time. I was like, Aunt Sylvia's so with it. She's so cool. She, she gets it. And then there's this moment where it was this thing, you know, she said something akin to like, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't judge anyone on race. I think, you know, uh, it's a lot of like on action or on behavior or something like that. And she said, you know, if I saw someone who looked like a criminal, black or white, I think I, I, I would be, you know, uh, offended or turned off. And I'm thinking like, yeah, Sylvia, what does that mean? You know, what, what do you really mean by looking like, I mean, come on, we, uh, Brock, uh, what's it, there's a white rapist who looks like a, you know, put together college kid. So like, I, what does that mean? Right. So how do you engage in these conversations without jumping on the attack? Right. Because I think she did get very defensive, you know, and, and, and how do you how do you make these conversations effective? I, I really love the work of Dr. David Kampt, C-A-M-P-T. He has something called the White Ally Toolkit, and he teaches this biology of how to intervene with racist family members or or non-believing whatever family members where he says, so she says something like that. Um, say what she said to you again, like. I, it was it was like, you know, the idea of on appearance, right? You know, would you cross the street? Would you go to the other side if you saw, you know, a person of color on the street, right? And it was like, well, no, if the person looked like a criminal, you know, it wouldn't matter if they're white or black. I'm, in my head, I'm thinking like, what is your okay. con? You, you play her. I, 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 I'm going to play you now. Oh, uh, so I heard you say that if you saw someone um, across the street and it wouldn't matter if they were white or black, uh, who looked like a criminal, you would stop and, and, and not cross the street there. Is that right? Well, if they look like a criminal, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, what, what experience have you had that, that made you feel this way? Well, I just think there are certain like little signifiers, style dress. Like I just find certain things offensive, you know, like uh, uh, baggy pants. Like I don't want to see someone's ass hanging out. That tells me they're not, you know, that what's that telling me? Well, you know, I used to think that baggy pants and, and, and things of that nature were kind of scary. I'm going to be honest with you. And I wasn't, um, I was probably like you, I was leery of crossing the street uh, when I saw someone who looked like that. And then I got to know lots of young adults who wore baggy pants. And I realized they're just like me, but they like wearing baggy pants. And that doesn't make them a criminal and that doesn't make them bad or anything like that. And now I feel very comfortable crossing the street around all kinds of people. The methodology is your, your family member says something racist. You ask them, well, what experience caused you to believe that? And then you find some nugget in their story that you can identify with. And you can talk about that you used to, to share that same viewpoint. And then you show the bridge of how you got to the viewpoint that you have now. So in other words, you're not yelling at them. You're not telling them they're stupid. You're not... Um, you know, escalating the conflict. And quite honestly, I mean, I have family members who voted for Trump, et cetera. Like, have I been able to persuade them? No, but in the end, they're really not my audience. Their kids are my audience. The other white people in that space are my audience. So if I'm, if I'm just sitting in that space and letting them spew this stuff and not saying anything about it, 
I'm complicit in its spread. And if I'm countering it, then they are hearing, uh, you know, everybody else, even if I'm unable to persuade the person who's sharing that viewpoint, everybody else, uh, I may be persuading them. We have time for one last question. This one is coming in from John in Silicon Valley. And also, I just want to note to everyone, so it's a question about boards and anti-racism. I also just want to note that my next week's seminar is how to talk about race with your boards with Martha Hackmatt. So... Stay tuned for that. I'll make sure you all get a, uh, a link to that. But So Karen, I um, run a small organization and it very much operates in the, the, white persona, the white supremacist system of philanthropy that you described. And I think a starting place is taking advantage of this moment where you, you mentioned that this is a window of opportunity where people's eyes are opened and their hearts are softened. And so I want to move the conversation forward around what it looks like for our organization to be an anti-racist organization. And I wanna do that in a way that does not put my board members of color in a position where they have to carry the burden of educating our white board members um, or carrying more emotional burden in the conversation than, than they want to. So I wonder if you have any, any tips or kind of like steps on that is the right thing to do like a white caucus group first or preview the conversation with our board members of color. I'm just wondering how you would suggest moving forward. It's interesting because a lot of people are calling me with this question. I would recommend working with like an organizational change consultant. Of course, all of them are extremely busy right now, but, but I think this is still a great moment to get started. And so my advice is similar to what I said to Annie, start with a small group of stakeholders who you know really, really care about this topic um, and include everybody, right? It could be the board members, the funders, the um, staff, the students, everybody, you know, think of your whole ecosystem because I think that's one of our biggest problems in the nonprofit sector is that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest away from the actual resources and decision-making power. So you want to make sure it, this conversation is not just occurring at the board level, but that there's representation at every level of the hierarchy within the organization. And you come up with a shared vision of what an anti-racist breakthrough would look and feel like. Um, what, what kind of experience would it be for the students if it were an anti-racist organization? And then reverse engineer, that's the word I was looking for, reverse engineer from where you are now to what that would look like and who would have to be involved along the way and sort of create that roadmap together and, and formulate that for yourselves. And there are, you know, I, I, Desiree Attaway is a fantastic resource in this area. I think she's doing a free webinar this week on how racism shows up in the workplace. But yeah, there's a, I think if you Google it, you know, you'll see some really good organizational consultants in this area, and I'm happy to talk with you. I'm going to ask one last question, which is a, a doozy, Karen, so we're probably not even going to be able to scratch the surface, but you have been a fundraiser, I am a fundraiser, and what I've really been thinking about a lot is the ways in which we decolonize wealth and philanthropy, and when we think about who has access to money and decision-making and who gets funded and who doesn't um, is problematic because I think a recent study came out that showed 
in stark numbers how organizations run by folks of color were disproportionately underfunded compared to white-led organizations. So I guess I'm just wondering, how do we start the work of decolonizing wealth and philanthropy in this country? Well, I think we need a public reparations process. We need to sit and, and understand the history of our country and how this wealth was generated. I mean, enslaved people at the time of the Civil War were the single largest asset in the United States, worth $3 billion, more so than, than all the other railroads and every other asset that we had um, combined. And that is the, the foundation of our prosperity today. And we, you know, you think about even why are individuals in the in the capacity to give away this money is largely because of all the legal mechanisms like trusts and stuff like that that have allowed them to maintain this wealth and pass it over generations. Um, and we need to reconfigure everything. And it starts, we can start now by paying reparations directly to black people and indigenous people. I mean, look at look at how Navajo Nation has suffered during COVID. They don't, they they have the highest rates of COVID infection of any place in the country. Like, we need to use this time. Our society is so unequal, and I really hate the whole like we are the super elite wealthy and we give these little tripling amounts of dollars to these nonprofits and they all have to compete with each other and. It, the whole ecosystem has to change. And that means the people in positions of power within this ecosystem are going to have to step down or they're, you know, they have to be held to account for this because this is unfair, it's unequal. And what, what I see happening is that this is really a generational shift in leadership. So 43% of millennials are people of color 47% of Gen Z are people of color. And last year, millennials surpassed boomers as the largest generational group in both the workforce and in the electorate. And they're not gonna take this anymore. Like they, they, they're done. You think about how screwed over millennials have been from the 2008 economic downturn that caused them to graduate into a terrible job market. Um, the, the fact that they can't buy houses because BlackRock and Jared Kushner and them bought up all the houses. Even the, the price they pay for mass incarceration, this is one of the points that I try and make to white millennials. The reason why y'all have so much student debt is because we've decided as a society to invest in prisons and prison guards for black and brown young people. And that's why your public universities are so costly because the money that should be going to universities is being expended on prisons. You are all screwed over by the system, millennials. And I ask that you change every single aspect of it and I will stand behind you and I'll share all the knowledge that I've accumulated over my 51 years on this planet is, is here in service to you in any way that I can be of help to you. Um, the point is well taken, which is like half measures are not going to get us yeah. out of this problem. It's, it's going to have to be a full scale rethinking, restructuring, systemic change 
And, you know, I've, I've been saying over the last couple of days that the revolution will be televised. In fact, they'll be on cell phones. On Instagram. <laughs> the revolution <laughs> will be on Instagram. With that, I think we're going to wrap it up. Karen, I really appreciate your being with us. What I will do for folks on the call is I will get... Thank you so much, Ria. Thank you, everybody, for joining. I really appreciate all of your um, thoughtful questions and, and listening to me.